Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And also in Johannesburg, we are joined by two journalists and authors who are the authors of the new book, Continental Shift, an investigative journey into Africa's 21st century. Richard Poplock and Kevin Bloom, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Oh, we're very excited to have you on the show. So let me just kind of set up the book that you guys have just put out. And, and, and just to kind of put a disclaimer out there, as you do in the first chapter of the book, this is not a China-Africa book. So people may be wondering, why are you on our show today? Well, because as you write right in the first chapter of the book, China is the defining phenomenon of the time. And so China plays an incredibly important role in these first few years of the 21st century in Africa. And so we're here to talk about all of the different things that you discovered on your, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, nine-year journey that took you to eight African countries and even all the way to China in order to write this book. Is that correct? Uh, slightly wrong. Um, <laughs> we, we began the book uh, nine years ago. Um, we, we decided to write it nine years ago, but uh, full-time dedication was about five years ago. We went to 16 African countries, okay. including China and India. And uh, Ten of those countries made the book. Ten of countries made the book. Well, it is a fascinating journey, taking you to Namibia, to the DRC, to the Central African Republic, Sudan, and so many different places. So let's kind of just step back a little bit. And again, this is the China in Africa podcast, so we'll try to focus our attention there. And talk about what are some of the threads that you saw across the different countries as it relates to China. Reading your book, when I put it down, I felt more depressed about about the Chinese kind of engagement in Africa, that it is not a force necessarily for good. Now, again, let's put a little disclaimer again out here. You can see anything you want in the China-Africa relationship, and it, it is good and it's bad, and you guys really did do an excellent job of kind of showing the complexity of that. But let me start with you, Richard, and kind of get your, your, your kind of 10,000-meter take on, on the Chinese in Africa after doing this very long journey that took you to all of these countries where you said it is the defining phenomenon of the time. Well, I think I just want to step back just a little bit and say that, you know, our original intention with this book was actually not the Chinese. Um, our original intention with the book was to look at, uh, at Africa's fading white communities. Um, we were looking at a lens through which we could sort of try to interpret all of the changes that were happening so rapidly on the continent. Uh, we very quickly came to the, uh, to the realization that that lens was far too small. And it was, uh, you know, basically an absurd idea. And so what we did was sort of started to look around for what we felt was the defining uh, phenomenon, was this sort of catalyst for a massive amount of change that was happening on the continent. Now, we, we make a very clear distinction in the book between an understanding of what growth is and an understanding of what development is. So when we started to look, look around for what was driving all of this growth and all of this development, you know, you very quickly come to the realization that the Chinese are everywhere in Africa. Um, when we'd read editorials in the newspaper, it would be about China and Africa. When we spoke to people in the ground, it would be about China and Africa. So in, in 2010, when we fully delved into the book, um, this, was, this was absolutely the defining phenomenon. And the first few interviews we did for, did for the book uh, re regarded the, the, the Chinese in Africa and all of the, the, the manifold anxieties that, that, uh, that it was sort of taking shape around that. And I think, before I get to sort of the 10,000-foot view, I think what very neatly sums up 
the the anxieties that that were that were taking shape in 2010 was the very first interview we did and that was at the US State Department here in South Africa and state in 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 Johannesburg uh, pardon me in Pretoria was absolutely they were they were up in arms about the size of the new Chinese embassy that had just been built in uh, in Pretoria so you know starting out looking from above the Chinese in Africa was the story in 20 in 2010 now over the course of our of our research that changed a little bit but that was what everybody was talking about and that was the that was the big concern um, now that you've you, you went through such a long process of you know of, of researching and traveling and, and you're writing um, and and that that time also covered this kind of crucial moment in China-Africa relations where things really changed. You know, kind of there's been several moments yes. of, of massive change in the China-Africa relationship itself. How have you seen seen the presence of Chinese and China and Africa change over the time that you've been working on the book? I, I would like to refer to our uh, Botswana chapter, which for us was uh, incredibly instructive both in complicating the conversation and in, I suppose, changing the narrative. Uh, Sino-Hydro uh, had been working on five major construction projects in Botswana, the biggest of which was uh, the Dikhatlong Dam, which was going to deal with Botswana's potable water problem. And we managed to spend almost a week on site there speaking to the South African engineers, speaking to the Botswana, overse the, the, the Botswana overseers of the project, and speaking to the, uh, the, the workers on the Chinese site. What came through very strongly initially was from all three of these subsets, a sense of distrust, a sense of wariness, from the sort of South African engineering side, the, the allegations in the sense was that the Chinese had sent their junior workers out to the projects in Africa in order to get experience, and then, and then these, the, these younger engineers would, would move on to projects in, in South America or wherever Sino-Hydro happened to be working. They had 261 projects on the go globally at the time. The, uh, the Chinese were, again, I think the word is wary about being in Africa and, and buying into certain international stereotypes about the continent, stereotypes about AIDS, stereotypes about corruption, stereotypes about conflict. And uh, the, the Botswana overseers were trying to hold it all together. It turned out that in 2013, while we were following the story and trying to put it to bed, that the Karma government um, verified that most of these projects were late and were below standard. So what, what we saw there was put the, the BDP governance principles coming in very strongly to censure the world's biggest construction firm, which which for us, us was a first, uh, and, and I think pretty much was a first across the continent, and ultimately leading to Sino-Hydro leaving under a cloud in July 2013, and uh, an engagement thereafter with, uh, with a major Indian multinational. The story for us is, is not a negative story, it's a positive story. 
because first of all, you, you've got the, the option, the opportunity that comes in with Sino-Hydro that means you no longer have to engage with the West, you no longer have to engage with the IMF and the structural adjustment programs and that standard nar narrative. But you're also seeing an opportunity within the opportunity that when proper African governance structures kick in, so China's not the only player from, from the East either. And we subsequently um, spoke to uh, Chinese diplomats in China who were very aware of the story. Um, Chinese academics uh, formerly of, of, of the foreign ministry who understood that this was a lesson for China itself. Yeah, and you point out in your Botswana chapter that, you know, again, staying with the positive theme of all of this, that the Kama government sent a clear message after the fall of Sino-Hydro that said to Western contractors, if you want to work here, you're going to have to lower your profit margins. That's good for all of Africa because it makes them, the foreign contractors, more competitive in the region. But in Botswana, you highlight a, a, a lot of key themes that we see across the broader Chinese relationship in Africa. And, and I'll pick up on a couple of them, and I'd like you guys to kind of talk about this. Number one was we ran into the kind of the stereotypes that the Chinese have about African Africans' work ethic, and particularly in Botswana. And, uh, you know, you quote some of the Chinese managers, all Africans are, have the same problem. They are lazy, exclamation point. They are not diligent like the Chinese. They don't want to work, but they want a better life. That is the conflict. That's one of the quotes from your book. And it really, this is one of the things that we hear across the continent, one of the cultural kind of chasms that exist between the Chinese. There's also this sense that the Chinese aren't playing by, by the rules. They're kind of cheating the rules by underbidding. And that's a threat to the establishment. This was more in the Namibia chapter that the kind of established white contractors who had been there were feeling very threatened by how the Chinese would come in and underbid by 20 or 30 percent. Now, they will tell you that they're underbidding by 20 or 30 percent because they're using substandard materials. They're using, you know, they're not paying attention to safety. They're not, you know, kind of living up to kind of established and, you know, respecting the law. So it's interesting how in Botswana and Namibia, so many of the main issues that transcend all of Africa were, were kind of congealed right there and then. I'd like you guys to talk about that. Well, that was obviously our plan to look, uh, to look at, at sort of the broader interpretation of the Chinese engagement on the continent through these two very, very interesting countries, but also very small countries and very contained countries uh, with small markets. And it was interesting how much attention the, the Chinese were actually paying to them. But I think, you, you know, it's, it's very interesting. First, we're talking about these massive cultural misperceptions. You know, when it comes to work in Africa, work in Africa doesn't pay off. You know, I think that's one of the lines in, in the Namibia chapter. Uh, work in Africa is rarely rewarded. Uh, work in Africa has terrible connotations to the shikot, to forced labor, to slavery. Um, so, so, I mean, you know, it's easy to agree with, with a lot of these Chinese foremen because they're 100% right. Africans do have a very, very different attitude to work, uh, you know, across a sort of broad cult cultural spectrum. But I think there's a flip side to this, and that was something that, that Chinese contractors seem to be learning quite quickly. In a lot of the countries, uh, certainly in southern Africa, there are very progressive labor laws that were earned by the liberation uh, governments uh, the very, very hard way. The unions in Namibia, in Botswana to a lesser extent, uh, Zimbabwe these days to a lesser extent, and certainly in South Africa, are very, very strict um, about, uh, about labor regulations 
And those, 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 those progressive rules are very, very hard-earned. So I, I think there's definitely a massive, massive uh, cultural breach over there. There's just, it, it's very hard for Chinese uh, foremen to speak to African workers in the same language. I mean that literally and figuratively. So that was one of the, the key issues that we, that, we, that we dealt with, and it's enormously pervasive, and I think that runs across the entire continent. Um, the other is, is, is that the big question is, do the Chinese flout the rules? And the answer to that question is very often yes. Um, as, as you've seen from the chapters in our book, we routinely saw labor regulations flouted. We routinely saw um, them underpaying, especially on minimum wage on construction sites. Um, that kind of thing happens all over the continent with Chinese contractors. The problem, of course, is that it happens with, with certainly South African contractors as well and international contractors. So, you know, again, you have this issue with work in Africa. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, how has it changed? So much of it these days is informal. Um, the, 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 the unemployment figures in African countries are nightmarish. So there's all of these complexities that we try to deal with in those chapters. Uh, and that, that that we sort of try to untangle. I guess one, you know, one of the complicating factors factors here is also the the role of China as an example of development. Not only China as a as a participant in the African labour market, but you know the way that that China built so much of its own economic, you know, development on very minimal kind of labor protection of, of workers. Um, you know, kind of, and, and to, to a large extent, China, Chinese officials, when they, when they make the point of that, that Africa should be following the Chinese example, that is kind of implied in there. You know, kind of that China managed to, to build up so much on, on the basis of highly underpaid um, and very insecure labor. Um, in, in your experience of, of looking at the, of this issue of work, of the, the you know, kind of the, the complicated relationship that Africa has with work, to which extent do you feel that the Chinese actually have a point? I mean, to which extent is, you know, in, in balancing this issue of uh, fantastic and, and progressive labor law with not a lot of people actually being able to work under that labor law compared to lots of people being unemployed, but, uh, being, uh, being employed but under terrible conditions? I mean, in, 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 a, in an Africa, it's a very harsh kind of economic reality that Africa is facing, like in, and, and, you know, kind of that you traveled through, which seems to be the better option? Impossible question, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is exactly the point that was made by somebody in the Chinese embassy in Namibia that uh, we quote in the Namibia chapter, that if you're going to have very stringent labor laws, uh, you're not going to have uh, an economy that's growing as fast as China's. Uh, to come back to, to the start of your question, uh, China as, as a model for, Africa, for African development, I think if there was one country that we saw the most similarities a, a, across the, the highest amount of categories, it might have been Ethiopia, and specifically the construction boom that was happening in Addis Ababa. But after visiting Addis two or three times and trying to get to the bottom of what, what is a very complicated development story, we, it started to dawn on us that the construction boom was, was not the story of Addis Ababa because all of those high-rises that were going up across the city would need to be filled and they weren't going to be filled by a population that was 93% unbanked. So, what was the story of Ethiopia's 10% year-on-year 
growth rate, we never really got to the bottom of it. We, we looked very closely at the agriculture. Mellers at the time was, was pushing the agricultural economy as the thing that was going to drive it at the same time that he was pushing construction. We looked at the Ethiopian constitution. The constitution stated that peasants couldn't own land. But uh, about five, six years ago, a, uh, an exception was made. If you happen to be a major international conglomerate that was uh, going to do industrial farming, those big industrial farms have almost uh, unexceptionally been, been failures. The Jibba 3 dam project in Ethiopia has not been much of a success either. So, you know, when, when you're looking at construction-led growth, I, I think this hasn't happened across Africa. In terms of, 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 of the workers, Richard mentioned earlier the fact that Africa has, has an informal economy. We've got... 70%, I think the figure is, across, across the right. continent of employment is, is in the informal sector. So it's, it's sort of homegrown entrepreneurship. It's, uh, it's an impossible question to answer, Kobus. And, and I think that the Chinese model has a lot to teach more from the perspective that it, it doesn't apply. To, to Africa than from the perspective that it does. Which, which doesn't stop African leaders, of course, and, and policymakers from top-thumping uh, the kind of Chinese model. Uh, and although all of the major Chinese diplomats and envoys that we spoke to insisted that there's no such thing as a, a Beijing consensus, uh, that, that, that sort of doesn't, doesn't exist in the mind of a lot of the, the African policymakers that we spoke to. As far as they're concerned, their talking point is that China is a huge lesson. China has much to teach African countries um, about rapid um, infrastructure-led development. Uh, the, the other obsession here, here in Africa, of course, for a little while, was special economic zones, which are, um, which, you know, if you listen to the Chinese story, they really, really drove uh, manufacturing on, on, on the sort of Pearl River Delta. Uh, We've been to special economic zones in Africa, uh, most notably uh, the, the one in, uh, on the Copper Belt in, uh, in Zambia. And also, Chambishi. Yeah, Chambishi, and then uh, another small one in, in Ethiopia. Um, special economic zones are very, very hard to get right. Um, and, you know, we've, we've seen time and time again, they just, they just don't sort of translate here. So well, this, this, this specific special economic zone in, in the middle of the uh, Zambian copper belt was on uh, no, absolutely zero trade routes. The, the, the irony was uh, it, it, it was sort of at the end of, of the Tanzam railway line, which was the biggest construction project that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has ever undertaken in the continent uh, in, the ni- in 1970s uh, terms at, at, at around $400 million dollars. But that, uh, that, that, that railway line um, is, is, is not functioning at, at optimum level. So you, you, you had sort of the, 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 the PR people for the Chambishi Special Economic Zone putting out to these companies special tax breaks and come in here and, and it's going to work like Shenzhen did. But, but how can it work like Shenzhen did if you can't get your goods out? Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting because Kobus and I have been wrestling with this idea about the Chinese economic model and whether or not it is an example for Africa. And, you know, over the years, I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it, it really isn't in many ways because China's situation is a single-party state with no real vocal civil society uh, it also doesn't have, you know, it has very unique situations in China, you know, political, economic, geopolitical security that aren't applicable in Africa. And I think there's just too much of a gap. And so they kind of promote this idea of infrastructure-led development, social economic rights ahead of civil political rights. And countries like Ethiopia are taking that and just running with it. But as we've seen elsewhere in Africa, it really doesn't kind of play out as well. And so staying on this construction theme, I wanted to ask you, you know, we had a guest about, oh, I'd say, a, 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 you know, Cabuena from Ghana a couple years ago. And he really made the point, he was a, he's a civil society activist, and he was very much frustrated by the Chinese construction that was put forward in Ghana. He said, you know, the roads, as soon as they were built, they started to fall apart. And in many ways, he said, it would have been better if they'd never built the roads. And then you in Botswana, in your research, seeing the kind of power stations and the dams and the other things that they built in, that Sino-Hydro built in Botswana, and the quality is so low that now the Kama government is trying to actually sell them the power stations. So I guess, you know, when you look at the quality of the Chinese construction, the infrastructure that they're making in Africa, and you see that, well, nobody else is making this. Deloitte came out with a report a couple weeks ago that said 14% of all infrastructure construction is being done by the Chinese. No other Mm -hmm. single foreign country even registers on the list. So I guess my question for you is, is it better than nothing that the Chinese make kind of substandard crappy infrastructure? Or would it maybe in some cases be better that they just didn't do this stuff? Well, again, that's, that's nearly an impossible, um, an impossible question to, to answer without the, the sort of data to back it up, I suppose. You, you know, do crappy roads make a difference to a country's development? I, I don't, again, I don't mean growth. I mean development. And that's, that was really the first question that we asked uh, each other. We're standing in a, in, a, in a town, this is back in 2006 now, and we're standing in a town called Calais on the other side of the Kavango um, in Angola. Um, so, so right across the, the, the river from, from Namibia. And we're looking at a town that was 7,000 people strong at the beginning of the Civil War, and it is now 35,000 people strong. And we have an uh, MPLA, an ex-MPLA soldier who's taking us around saying to us, look, this place is growing. It's growing amazingly. There's now roads that are linking to to sort of satellite cities. And one day there's going to be a road that's going to take us to to, to Luanda. So the the question, we we sort of stood there asking one another was, is that true? Is there going to be a road that's going to go to Luanda? Is Calais one day going to be linked to Namibia by a bridge? And is that bridge going to go all the way to Joburg or all the way to Cape Town? Now, if the answer to that question is yes, then that's amazing because that kind of, that, that, those kind of arteries, those kind of capillaries that will run through the continent are essential to actual development. I mean, Africa isn't a, a country. By no means is Africa a country, but it should sometimes behave like one. Um, if anything, sort of like a, a loose model uh, for, for many, many African countries you know, or, or, or some kind of multilateral conception of Africa, it should be the EU. You know, China is a far less, uh, far less salutary or, or even comparative model. It doesn't quite work. So, so, I mean, in terms of the quality of infrastructure, yeah, so much of what we've seen has been terrible. Roads that sort of just break apart to almost, uh, almost directly after being built, 
they turn into into sort of terrible accident zones. They're 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 nearly as impossible as the old tracks that preceded them. And then in some cases, we've seen very good construction projects. Um, so, I guess the real question comes down to: if you are the governor of a province in which the road is being built, whose responsibility is the road? You know, time and time again for us, it came back to this question of African governance. Who's in charge? The construction company who's building it, and they they go by their own sort of freestyle regulations, or the people it's being built for? And I think the question, uh, the answer to that question is always the people it's being built for. No one in London gets to freestyle a road. No one in Johannesburg gets to freestyle a road. It's built according to regulations, and that's that's super super important in conceiving of the the quality and durability of any construction project that happens on this continent. Um, so I wonder, I, I'd like us to, to move us a little bit towards the, the countries in, in continental Africa that might have some of the worst governance. Um, well, you know, that's contested territory, but um, is, is Zimbabwe. Um, and, you know, kind of one of the, one of the issues that we found in, in speaking about China-Zimbabwe relations is that there is such a such kind of crazy stories coming out of it, out of Zimbabwe about the influence of China there, and it's so difficult to verify. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about reporting on China-Zimbabwe relations, and especially, um, you know, kind of the discussions around the Marange mine and some of the rumors that you mentioned about about small small trade, indigenous small trade being broken in in uh, in favor of Chinese traders, and all of this, all of these kind of rumors that you hear about Zimbabwe. Well, yeah, I mean, we, one of the things we went to Zimbabwe to, to do was to investigate and either confirm or uh, throw out the, the rumors. And uh, we very soon uh, came across the story of the National Defense College in, uh, on the outskirts of Harare, on the old Mazoe Road, which uh, the Chinese government were, were building for ZANU at, a, I think the cost was almost $100 million, which leads to a bunch of further questions. And the major question is why? What is the quid pro quo here? And that is followed up by the secondary question, which is what is the context? We investigated rumors around Operation Murambat's Vina to get at the context. And this involved allegations that in this operation, which uh, is shown for Operation Cleanup, Chinese military advisors were patrolling the streets in green Peugeots and were advising the CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization in Zimbabwe, and the top levels of, of uh, the Zainu military, how to deal with riots and how to clean up the cities. We believe that, we believe we've verified these rumors. I mean, I think, I think we got as close as, as we could to saying this, this actually did happen. Then you get into murky waters because then you start to look at Operation Hakuzokwi, which is Operation You Will Not Return where in 2008 the uh, ZANU military went into the east of the country in the area around the Morangi and the diamond fields there and basically shut out the zone. And the locals who were unfortunate, unfortunate enough to, to live in the area and had been living in the area for generations 
in fact, effectively became enforced labor for, for this diamond mine. And this was a story that, you know, we'd see again in the Central African Republic. This, this was the ultimate African resource curse, where, again, the people who happen to live on top of the wealth become the, the poorest, most degraded, and, and live in the most abject conditions in, in the country. Um, the story tied directly into the notorious Sam Park, who is now languishing in a prison in mainland China somewhere. The, uh, the 737 that would land once a week on the Harari runway. And then on top of that, the, the metaphor that uh, became global and this, this many-headed hydra, the, the holding companies within holding companies linking into the BVI, linking into just dissolving into the sand. Where was this money going? Some, some amazing work was done by a forensic analyst that we subsequently met to actually pick all of this apart. Um, and, and, and this was all released in, uh, in a report put out by, was it Human Rights Watch or? Global Witness. Global Witness, yeah. that's, that, that's correct. Um, our conclusion about the, the Zimbabwe chapter was, you know, ZANU, ZANU had become the best version of itself it, it was ever going to be. It, it, it had become highly effective in, in this, what we call the money suck, in a, in a sort of blood funnel into the, one of the richest alluvial uh, diamond deposits on, on, on the African continent and, and the ability not, not to share that with anyone. I mean, Tendai Beatty took this up uh, in, in, in the Zimbabwe National Assembly, uh, looking at what sort of tax was paid out of the hundreds of millions of dollars that was taken out of Marangi, and it was absolutely nothing. It was absolutely minuscule. Um, aided and abetted by Sam Parr, who it has been corroborated, it has been verified, has links to Chinese military and intelligence. The, this was a dark story that was true. And this is a story that can't be ignored. And this was a story that we brought up with uh, two successive uh, special ambassadors for African affairs, Li Guijin and Zhang Jinhua. Um, and they tried to answer to their credits, uh, both of these gentlemen who, who were amazingly open with us, did attempt to answer this question the best way that they could, but there was a point beyond which they couldn't give us answers. And both of them said, with regard to the China International Fund, which was Sam Pa's Hong Kong-based holding company, the 88 Queensway Group, that this wasn't uh, a company that was sanctioned in any way by the Chinese Commun uh, Communist Party. It was, it was Hong Kong-based. And the fact that Sam Pa is now sitting in prison means that they followed through on this. They, they, they followed through on the fact that when they were saying to us they didn't sanction it, so now we know they didn't. How Sam Pa got away with it? Well, they said, look, gangsters and corruptions come, uh, gangsters come from any country on earth, which is a valid, you know, it's a valid answer. But just to be fair here, we don't actually know what tripped up Sam Pa and why he's in jail. He, he's under the, he's been, he was arrested under the guise of the anti-corruption crackdown. Uh, it might have been that yeah. he just didn't pay the right people. It might have been that he exhausted his utility. Uh, there's lots of different reasons why he's sitting in jail. He was allowed to do what he did for a very, very long time. 
And it's just very surprising to a lot of observers who kind of saw this happening in Angola, in Zimbabwe, in a number of different countries where he was able to, to kind of uh, behave almost, you know, independent of the government. He was that powerful. A hundred percent. Absolutely, Eric. But I mean, you... You know, we've, there, there are a couple of Israelis who get to do that as well. You know, we don't, uh, the names like Benny Steinmetz and Dan Gertler and you know, what's going on in Guinea and the DRC, why doesn't the government of, of, of Israel crack down on, on, on these people? It's, uh, and, 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 I, and I take your point, but I also think that the point that these guys get to behave with, with impunity for a while, no matter what country they're from, um, need, needs to be looked at. And, and then it becomes a question of African governance. Well, why are you allowing a 737 full of diamonds to leave your airport? That's right. Because that, 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 that's, always, that's always the question. Um, and, and, it, and in Zimbabwe's case, it's because ZANU is the state. ZANU has become such an, an efficient extractive entity that it just does exactly what it wants. There are no governance restrictions on who, who does what, where, so long as ZANU is, is okay with it. So, you know, once again, we come to, the, to, come to this issue, whether or not Sampa was sanctioned by, by, by Beijing to do what he did, why was he sanctioned by African governments? Because of greed and corruption. And, you know, kind of, and the, the, other, the other question is not only the governance within a country, within an African country, but regional governments as well, because that... You know that that seven forty that um, seven three seven full of diamonds. You know, fueled up in South Africa. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. You know, kind of. Um, so, so I mean, that that would have been a very easy way to stop it, but no one did. Let, I'd like um, to. Well, oh, go ahead. No, no. I just and, and again, you come back to the fact that if Africa, if Africa isn't the country, it should behave like one. Such a huge issue on this continent is some sort of regional cooperation between all the. All the so-called economic blocks, the SADC, the EAC, etc. Uh, we 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 really need to get that right. Uh, we need to have both actual border controls and loosened border controls simultaneously. I'd like to end our dis- I'd like to end our discussion uh, in your chapter in the DRC, where you had a chance to talk with. Mark Bristow, who's Rangold's chief executive officer. Rangold, if I'm correct, is a very large South African mining company. Is that correct? Yeah, mining operations. Okay, mining yes. operations. And, and he, he had some very interesting observations. So I'd like to read a couple quotes and then kind of, you know, this allows us a nice kind of exit point here. He says, he's Afrikaans, so I hate the effing British. But I just can't see the Chinese succeeding in Katanga. Katanga is a province in the DRC. They can't work in a foreign culture, and their lack of transparency and openness is going to F them in the long run. He used a little bit of salty language that we have a clean podcast here. So, uh, China can be a game changer in Africa, he said, in the context of his research, if they ever work out the formula. But I haven't seen anything in the history books that tells me they will be open to local conditions. Now, those, were, I think, were maybe have been two quotes from two different people, but in the same context there that can the Chinese adapt? Does Mark Bristow have a point here that the, the two cultures are just so foreign that it might be a bridge too far to cross? Or are we just seeing the first generation of China's engagement in Africa and the second and third generations that are going to come in time will start to smooth things out? And Bristow, he's speaking from the point of view of today, but tomorrow these are going to be issues that will be resolved. Give us a little point. Talk, talk to us a little bit about either, each of you on the adaptability of the Chinese model in Africa and the Chinese people in Africa. 
Well, we're, we're making the assumption, again, that there is sort of a, a Chinese model um, that, that sort of runs through consistently from, from the top all the way to the ground in, in, in Africa. And I think, you know, I think one of the things we established is, is that that isn't entirely, uh, isn't entirely the case. But I think, you know, nothing about this relationship has been static. Um, nothing about this relationship suggests that, that um, Chinese companies working on the ground in Africa aren't learning and learning quite quickly and learning some very, very hard lessons. I think, uh, and, and I think we found, that, uh, that, that the Chinese companies who are going to succeed, not only here but in China as well, are going to have to adapt to, to these changing conditions. And I think they already are doing that. So I, I think the, the relationship that we sort of analyzed from, let's say, 2000 to 2015 is already in a different phase. Um, I, I, you know, the book, if there's a sequel, would sort of start to take that on, where there is far more, I'm not going to say balanced engagement, but, but certainly the Chinese on the ground in Africa are much, much more savvy already. I'd, I'd like to answer that by, by sort of telling two stories. Uh, the, the first, I was at Zhejiang uh, Normal University in uh, April last year and uh, had the privilege, and it was a real privilege, of engaging with their postgraduate uh, political economy students. And I was uh, sort of uh, debating with them with, uh, with a guy by the name of Paul Tembe, a uh, South African guy who speaks a very high level of Mandarin and uh, was, uh, had done his postdoc in, in China. And, and, and we were having a, a debate around exactly this, where the, the China-Africa relationship was and, and where it was going to go next. And, and their understanding of, of, of the issues was, was, was incredible. The understanding of the complexities, the understanding that it was the first generation, and the understanding that China was pretty much in Africa to stay. And these were all people that had done a lot of time on the ground in rural areas in Africa and are going to keep coming back. And the, I mean, the whole department at uh, Zhejiang Normal University was 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 growing. It, it, it was a really successful, vibrant, engaged department, and reflective, I think, of of the beginning of the second generation. I certainly got that sense, and and so did Paul Tembe. The other story is is more sort of a a, a soft diplomacy story that was at its first generation phase when we came across it, but might change in. Time. And it was one of the stories that, that, that didn't make our book. In, uh, I think it was in around 2012, we saw a, a small item uh, on Xinhua about a guy from the Nanjing Foreign Languages Institute, also a graduate of, uh, of, of the University of Hamburg, who had been born in uh, Nanjing and uh, spoke a, a fluent Hausa in Swahili and had been out at the University of Zanzibar in Stonetown putting together the first Mandarin Swahili dictionary since 1935, I think it was. And we spent a week with him, uh, Yuning Shen, his name was, following him around uh, sort of the outskirts of Stone Town and, and, and the interior of Zanzibar while he was trying to figure out the, uh, the Mandarin equivalent, the, Mandian, uh, the Mandarin ideographic equivalent for the three different words for hump that existed in Swahili. In Mandarin, there was only one. And, 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 and the engagement was, for us, at the coalface of, 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 of the new cultural and social um, 
meeting point that is absolutely critical if 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 if, if there is going to be a, a, an economic engagement that's more successful in the second generation. It turned out that Yuning Shen couldn't get his uh, dictionary published because he didn't have the sanction of the Communist Party, which was very revealing in itself. It is. The book is Continental Shift, an investigative journey into Africa's 21st century. Uh, it is listed as a category of travel writing, which I don't know if your publisher put it down as travel writing. I'm not sure I would actually describe it that way, but it does have some Maybe. travel writing yeah. in it. Uh, but we'll it is. Have to fix that. <laughs> yes, yeah. it has. It's well, political, cultural, survive. economic. It's lots of different things. Uh, it's as diverse as the regions that they covered throughout Africa. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. One of the things we like to do at the end of every show is kind of introduce our listeners to where they can follow you on social media. And I know both of you are quite active. Uh, let's, Kevin, let's start with you. And if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch? Uh, at Kev Bloom is my Twitter handle. You can find me on Facebook under Kevin Bloom. Uh, there are a few Kevin Blooms in the world, apparently, but uh, I'm the one that wrote the book on Africa. Um, and sort of my stuff's in, uh, a lot of my stuff's in Daily Maverick. Daily Maverick. Richard. Uh, and it, yeah, and in the background there, those are party dolls, the signature birds of Joba, just so your listeners are aware of that. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on at Poplak, P-O-P-L-A-K, on Twitter. Um, we're also on Facebook under Richard Poplak. I'm the only Richard Poplak in the world. And uh, you can also follow a lot of our work at Daily Maverick, um, which is a South African sort of news uh, analyst website uh, at dailymaverick.coza. And uh, I think that pretty much covers it. Excellent. Yeah. And the book is available on Amazon.com. When is the book going to be published, you know, for wide release? Uh, it's, it's been published in South Africa. Our launch was a couple of weeks ago. The UK release is going to be 9th of March. And uh, we're holding... April, sorry. Uh, sorry, 9th of... Uh, 7th of April, UK release. And we're, uh, we're holding thumbs for French and German translations we're waiting to hear. Do you think you'll ever get a Chinese translation? We, we really do hope so. Uh, and, I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it'll pass the censors, but nonetheless, it'd still be interesting for, for an, a, a Chinese population outside of China to read it. It's, uh, it's a little bit too sensitive for the Chinese domestically, but, yeah, you know, so they're not a huge market for it, but the symbolism of it all would be, would be quite great. Hey, uh, Kobus, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Um, I'm on our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and there we curate this this constant every four hours feed of new China Africa news items. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk, with S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And if that four-hour window of, of content every four hours on Facebook is a little too much for you, we have a weekly email newsletter that goes out every Monday with four or five stories. In fact, this week's email newsletter went out with a link to the book, Continental Shift, and a, a couple paragraphs about it. So that's the kind of thing that we put in the newsletter where we're looking for cool academic papers, interesting new books, and four or five top stories, including a podcast. So go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com to sign up there, or you can sign up on our Facebook page. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it, go to itunes.com slash chinaafricapodcast and click on the subscribe button. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.